Chapter Twenty Seven, Part Two of *The Virginian*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Virginian* by Owen Wister. Chapter Twenty Seven, Grandmother Stark, Part Two. So the two nurses continued to sit until darkness at the windows weakened into gray, and the lamp was no more needed. Their patient was rambling again. Yet into whatever scenes he went, there in some guise did the throb of his pain evidently follow him, and he lay hitching his great shoulder as if to rid it of the cumbrance. They waited for the doctor, not daring much more than to turn pillows and give what other ease they could. And then, instead of the doctor, came a messenger, about noon, to say he was gone on a visit some thirty miles beyond, where Taylor had followed to bring him here as soon as might be. At this Molly consented to rest, and to watch turnabout, and once she was over in her friend's house lying down, they tried to keep her there. But the revolutionists could not be put down, and when, as a last pretext, Mrs. Taylor urged the proprieties and conventions, the pale girl from Vermont laughed sweetly in her face, and returned to sit by the sick man. With the approach of the second night, his fever seemed to rise and master him more completely than they had yet seen it, and presently it so raged that the women called in stronger arms to hold him down. There were times when he broke out in the language of the round-up, and Mrs. Taylor renewed her protests. "'Why,' said Molly, "'don't you suppose I knew they could swear?' So the dame, in deepening astonishment and affection, gave up these shifts at decorum. Nor did the delirium run into the intimate coarse matters that she dreaded. The cowpuncher had lived like his kind, but his natural daily thoughts were clean, and came from the untamed but unstained mind of a man. And toward morning, as Mrs. Taylor sat taking her turn, suddenly he asked had he been sick long, and looked at her with a quieted eye. The wandering seemed to drop from him at a stroke, leaving him altogether himself. He lay very feeble, and inquired once or twice of his state and how he came here, nor was anything left in his memory of even coming to the spring where he had been found. When the doctor arrived, he pronounced that it would be long, or very short. He praised their clean water treatment. The wound was fortunately well up on the shoulder, and gave so far no bad signs. There were not any bad signs, and the blood and strength of the patient had been as few men's were. Each hour was now an hour nearer certainty, and meanwhile, meanwhile the doctor would remain as long as he could. He had many inquiries to satisfy. Dusty fellows would ride up, listen to him, and reply, as they rode away, "'Don't you let him die, Doc.' And Judge Henry sent over from Sunk Creek to answer for any attendance or medicine that might help his foreman. The country was moved with concern and interest, and in Molly's ears its words of good feeling seemed to unite and sum up a burden. "'Don't you let him die, Doc.' The Indians who had done this were now in military custody, they had come unpermitted from a southern reservation, hunting, next thieving, and as the slumbering spirit roused in one or two of the young and ambitious, 
they had ventured this in the secret mountains, and perhaps had killed a trapper found there. Editors immediately reared a tall war out of it, but from five Indians in a guardhouse waiting punishment, not even an editor can supply spar for more than two editions. And if the recent alarm was still a matter of talk anywhere, it was not here in the sick-room. Whichever way the case should turn, it was through Molly alone, the doctor told her, that the wounded man had got this chance, this good chance, he related. And he told her she had not done a woman's part, but a man's part, and now had no more to do. No more till the patient got well and could thank her in his own way, said the doctor, smiling, and supposing things that were not so, misled perhaps by Mrs. Taylor. "'I'm afraid I'll be gone by the time he is well,' said Molly coldly, and the discreet physician said, ah, and that she would find Bennington quite a change from Bear Creek. But Mrs. Taylor spoke otherwise, and at that the girl said, "'I shall stay as long as I am needed. I will nurse him. I want to nurse him. I will do everything for him that I can,' she exclaimed with force." "'And that won't be anything, dearie,' said Mrs. Taylor harshly. "'A year of nursing don't equal a day of sweetheart.' The girl took a walk. She was of no more service in the room at present. But she turned without going far, and Mrs. Taylor spied her come to lean over the pasture fence and watch the two horses, that one the Virginian had gentled for her, and his own Monty. During this suspense came a new call for the doctor, neighbors profiting by his visit to Bear Creek, and in his going away to them, even under promise of quick return, Mrs. Taylor suspected a favorable sign. He kept his word as punctually as had been possible, arriving after some six hours with a confident face, and spending now upon the patient a care not needed, save to reassure the bystanders. He spoke his opinion that all was even better than he could have hoped it would be so soon. Here was now the beginning of the fifth day. The wound's look was wholesome, no further delirium had come, and the fever had abated a degree while he was absent. He believed the serious danger line lay behind, and, short of the unforeseen, the man's deep, untainted strength would reassert its control. He had much blood to make, and must be cared for during weeks, three, four, five, there was no saying how long yet. These next few days it must be utter quiet for him. He must not talk, nor hear anything likely to disturb him, and then the time for cheerfulness and gradual company would come, sooner than later the doctor hoped. So he departed, and sent next day some bottles, with further cautions regarding the wound and dirt, and to say he should be calling the day after to-morrow. Upon that occasion he found two patients. Molly Wood lay in bed at Mrs. Taylor's, filled with apology and indignation. With little to do, and deprived of the strong stimulant of anxiety and action, her strength had quite suddenly left her, so that she had spoken only in a sort of whisper. But upon waking from a long sleep, after Mrs. Taylor had taken her firmly, almost severely, in hand, her natural voice had returned, and now the chief treatment the doctor gave her was a sort of scolding, which it pleased Mrs. Taylor to hear. 
The doctor even dropped a phrase concerning the arrogance of strong nerves and slender bodies, and of undertaking several people's work when several people were at hand to do it for themselves, and this pleased Mrs. Taylor remarkably. As for the wounded man, he was behaving himself properly. Perhaps in another week he could be moved to a more cheerful room. Just now, with cleanliness and pure air, any barn would do. "'We are real lucky to have such a sensible doctor in the country,' Mrs. Taylor observed after the physician had gone. "'No doubt,' said Molly. "'He said my room was a barn.' "'That's what you've made it, dearie, but sick men don't notice much.' Nevertheless, one may believe, without going widely astray, that illness, so far from veiling, more often quickens the perceptions, at any rate those of the naturally keen. On a later day, and the interval was brief, while Molly was on her second drive to take the air with Mrs. Taylor, that lady informed her that the sick man had noticed. "'And I could not tell him things liable to disturb him,' said she. "'And so I—well, I expect I just didn't exactly tell him the facts. I said, yes, you were packing up for a little visit to your folks. They had not seen you for quite a while,' I said, and he looked at those boxes kind of silent-like. "'There's no need to move him,' said Molly. "'It is simpler to move them, the boxes. I could take out some of my things, you know, just while he has to be kept there. I mean, you see, if the doctor says the room should be cheerful—yes, dearie.' "'I will ask the doctor next time,' said Molly, "'if he believes I am competent to spread a rug upon a floor.' Molly's references to the doctor were usually acid these days. And this he totally failed to observe, telling her when he came, why, to be sure, the very thing, and if she could play cards or read aloud, or afford any other light distractions, provided they did not lead the patient to talk and tire himself, that she would be most useful. Accordingly she took over the cribbage board, and came with unexpected hesitation face to face again with the swarthy man she had saved and tended. He was not so swarthy now, but neat, with chin clean, and hair and mustache trimmed and smooth, and he sat propped among pillows, watching for her. "'You are better,' she said, speaking first and with uncertain voice. "'Yes, they have given me orders not to talk,' said the Southerner, smiling. "'Oh, yes, please, do not talk, not to-day.' "'No, only this.' He looked at her and saw her seem to shrink. "'Thank you for what you have done,' he said simply. She took tenderly the hand he stretched to her, and upon these terms they set to work at cribbage. She won, and won again, and the third time laid down her cards and reproached him with playing in order to lose. "'No,' he said, and his eye wandered to the boxes. "'But my thoughts get away from me. I'll be strong enough to hold them on the cards next time, I reckon.' Many tones in his voice she had heard, but never the tone of sadness until today. Then they played a little more, and she put away the board for this first time. "'You are going now?' he asked. "'When I have made this room look a little less forlorn, they haven't wanted to meddle with my things, I suppose. 
and Molly stooped once again among the chattels destined for Vermont. Out they came, again the bearskin was spread on the floor, various possessions and ornaments went back into their ancient niches, the shelves grew comfortable with books, and last some flowers were stood on the table. "'More like old times,' said the Virginian, but sadly. "'It's too bad,' said Molly. "'You had to be brought into such a looking place.' "'And your folks waitin' for you,' said he. "'Oh, I'll pay my visit later,' said Molly, putting the rug a trifle straighter. "'May I ask one thing?' pleaded the Virginian, and at the gentleness of his voice her face grew rosy, and she fixed her eyes on him with a sort of dread. "'Anything that I can answer,' said she. "'Oh, yes. Did I tell you to quit me, and did you load up my gun and stay? Was that a real business? I have been mixed up in my head.' "'That was real,' said Molly. "'What else was there to do?' "'Just nothing, for such as you,' he exclaimed. "'My head has been mighty crazy, and that little grandmother of yours, yonder, she—but I can't just quite catch a hold of these things.' He passed a hand over his forehead. "'So many, or else one right along. Well, it's all foolishness,' he concluded, with something almost savage in his tone. And after she had gone from the cabin he lay very still, looking at the miniature on the wall. He was in another sort of mood the next time, cribbage not interesting him in the least. "'Your folks will be wandering about you,' said he. "'I don't think they will mind which month I go to them,' said Molly, "'especially when they know the reason.' "'Don't let me keep you, ma'am,' said he. Molly stared at him, but he pursued, with the same edge lurking in his slow words. "'Though I'll never forget. How could I forget any of all you have done, and been? If there had been none of this, why, I had enough to remember. But please don't stay, ma'am.' We'll say I had a claim when you found me pretty well dead, but I'm getting well, you see, right smart, too. I can't understand, indeed I can't, said Molly, why you're talking so. He seemed to have certain moods when he would address her as ma'am, and this she did not like, but could not prevent. Oh, a sick man is funny, and you know I'm grateful to you. "'Please say no more about that, or I shall go this afternoon. "'I don't want to go. I am not ready. "'I think I had better read something now.' "'Why, yes, that's certainly a good notion. "'Why, this is the best show you'll ever get to give me education. "'Won't you please try that Emma book now, ma'am? "'Listening to you will be different.' "'This was said with softness and humility. "'Uncertain, as his gravity often left her, Precisely what he meant by what he said, Molly proceeded with Emma, slackly at first, but soon with the enthusiasm that Miss Austin invariably gave her. She held the volume and read away at it, commenting briefly, and then, finishing a chapter of the sprightly classic, found her pupil slumbering peacefully. There was no uncertainty about that. "'You couldn't be doing a healthier thing for him, dearie,' said Mrs. Taylor. If it gets to make him wakeful, try something harder. This was the lady's scarcely sympathetic view. 
but it turned out to be not obscurity in which Miss Austin sinned. When Molly next appeared at the Virginian's threshold, he said plaintively, "'I reckon I am a dunce,' and he sued for pardon. "'When I waked up,' he said, "'I was ashamed of myself for a plum half-hour.' Nor could she doubt this day that he meant what he said. His mood was again serene and gentle, and without referring to his singular words that had distressed her, he made her feel his contrition, even in his silence. "'I am right glad you have come,' he said, and as he saw her going to the bookshelf, he continued with diffidence, "'As regards that Emma book, you see, you see, the doings and sayings of folks like them are above me. But I think,' he spoke most diffidently, "'if you could read me something that was about something, I, I'd be liable to keep awake.' And he smiled with a certain shyness. "'Something about something?' queried Molly, at a loss. "'Why, yes. Shakespeare. Henry the Fourth. The British king is fighting, and there is his son, the prince. He certainly must have been a jim-dandy boy, if that is all true. Only he would go around town with a mighty trifling gang. They sported, and they held up citizens, and his father hated his traveling with trash like them. It was right natural, the boy and the old man. But the boy showed himself a man, too. He killed a big fighter on the other side, who was another jim-dandy, and he was sorry for having it to do. The Virginian warmed to his recital. I understand most all of that. There was a fat man kept everybody laughing. He was awful natural, too, except you don't commonly meet him so fat. But the prince, that play is bedrock, ma'am. Have you got something like that? Yes, I think so, she replied. I believe I see what you would appreciate. She took her browning, her idol, her imagined affinity. For the pale decadence of New England had somewhat watered her good old revolutionary blood, too, and she was inclined to think under glass and to live underdone, when there were no Indians to shoot. She would have joyed to venture Paracelsus on him, and some lengthy rhyme discourses, and she fondly turned leaves and leaves of her pet doggerel analytics. Pippa passes and others she had to skip, from discreet motives, pages which he would have doubtless stayed awake at, but she chose a poem at length. This was better than Emma, he pronounced, and short. The horse was a good horse. He thought a man whose horse must not play out on him would watch the ground he was galloping over for holes, and not be likely to see what color the rims of his animal's eye-sockets were. You could not see them if you sat as you ought to for such a hard ride. Of the next piece that she read him he thought still better. And it is short, said he, but the last part drops. Molly instantly exacted particulars. The soldier should not have told the general he was killed, stated the cowpuncher. What should he have told him, I'd like to know, said Molly. Why, just nothing. If the soldier could ride out of the battle all shot up and tell his general about their taking the town, that was being gritty, you see. But that truck at the finish, will you please say it again? 
So Molly read, "'You're wounded. Nay, the soldier's pride touched to the quick,' he said. "'I'm killed, sire,' and, his chief beside, smiling, the boy fell dead. "'Nay, I'm killed, sire,' drawled the Virginian amiably, for, symptom of convalescence, his freakish irony was revived in him. Now a man who was man enough to act like he did, you see, would fall dead without mentioning it. None of Molly's sweet girlfriends had ever thus challenged Mr. Browning. They had been wont to cluster over him with a joyous awe that deepened proportionally with their misunderstanding. Molly paused to consider this novelty of view about the soldier. "'He was a Frenchman, you know,' she said, under inspiration. "'A Frenchman,' murmured the grave cowpuncher. "'I never knowed a Frenchman, but I reckon they might perform that class of foolishness.' "'But why was it foolish?' she cried. "'His soldier's pride, don't you see?' "'No.' Molly now burst into a luxury of discussion. She leaned toward her cowpuncher with bright eyes searching his, with elbow on knee and hand propping chin, her lap became a slant, and from it Browning the poet slid and toppled and lay unrescued. For the slow cowpuncher unfolded his notions of masculine courage and modesty, though he did not deal in such high-sounding names, and Molly forgot everything to listen to him as he forgot himself and his inveterate shyness, and grew talkative to her. "'I would never have supposed that,' she would exclaim as she heard him, or presently again, "'I never had such an idea.' And her mind opened with delight to these new things which came from the man's mind, so simple and direct. To Browning they did come back, but the Virginian, though interested, conceived a dislike for him. "'He is a smarty,' said he, once or twice. "'Now here is something,' said Molly. "'I have never known what to think.' "'Oh, heavens!' murmured the sick man, smiling. "'Is it short?' "'Very short. Now please attend.' And she read him twelve lines about a lover who rode to a beach in the dusk, crossed a field, tapped at a pane, and was admitted. "'That is the best yet.' said the Virginian. There's only one thing you can think about that. But wait, said the girl swiftly, here is how they parted. Round the cape of a sudden came the sea, and the sun looked over the mountain's rim, and straight was a path of gold for him, and the need of a world of men for me. That is very, very true, murmured the Virginian, dropping his eyes from the girl's intent ones. "'Had they quarreled?' she inquired. "'Oh, no.' "'But—' "'I reckon he loved her very much.' "'Then you're sure they hadn't quarreled?' "'Dead sure, ma'am. "'He would come back after he had played some more of the game.' "'The game?' "'Life, ma'am. "'Whatever he was a-doin' in the world of men. "'That's a bedrock piece, ma'am.' "'Well, I don't see why you think it's so much better than some of the others.' "'I could scarcely explain,' answered the man. "'But that rider does know something.' "'I'm glad they hadn't quarreled,' said Molly, thoughtfully, and she began to like having her opinions refuted. 
His bandages, becoming a little irksome, had to be shifted, and this turned their discourse from literature to Wyoming, and Molly inquired had he ever been shot before? Only once, he told her. I have been lucky in having few fusses, said he. I hate them. If a man has to be killed— You never— broke in Molly. She had started back a little. Well, she added hastily, don't tell me if— I shouldn't wonder if I got one of those Indians, he said quietly. But I wasn't waiting to see. But I came mighty near doing for a white man that day. He had been hurting a hoss. Hurting? said Molly. Injuring. I will not tell you about that. It would hurt you to hear such things. But hosses, don't they depend on us? Ain't they something like children? I did not lay up the man very bad. He was able to travel most right away. Why, you'd have wanted to kill him yourself. So the Virginian talked, nor knew what he was doing to the girl. Nor was she aware of what she was receiving from him, as he unwittingly spoke himself out to her in these browning meetings they had each day. But Mrs. Taylor grew pleased. The kindly dame would sometimes cross the road to see if she were needed, and steal away again after a peep at the window. There, inside, among the restored home treasures, sat the two, the rosy alert girl, sweet as she talked or read to him, and he, the grave, half-weak giant, among his wraps, watching her. Of her delayed home visit he never again spoke, either to her or to Mrs. Taylor, and Molly veered aside from any trend of talk she foresaw was leading toward that subject. But in those hours when no visitors came, and he was by himself in the quiet, he would lie often somberly contemplating the girl's room, her little dainty knick-knacks, her home photographs, all the delicate manifestations of what she came from and what she was. Strength was flowing back into him each day, and Judge Henry's latest messenger had brought him clothes and mail from Sunk Creek, and many inquiries of kindness, and returned taking the news of the cowpuncher's improvement, and how soon he would be permitted the fresh air. Hence Molly found him waiting in a flannel shirt of highly becoming shade, and with a silk handkerchief knotted round his throat, and he told her it was good to feel respectable again. She had come to read to him for the allotted time, and she threw around his shoulders the scarlet and black Navajo blanket, striped with its splendid zigzags of barbarity. Thus he half sat, half leaned, languid but at, at ease. In his lap lay one of the letters brought over by the messenger, and though she was midway in a book that engaged his full attention, David Copperfield, his silence and absent look this morning stopped her, and she accused him of not attending. No, he admitted, I am thinking of something else. She looked at him with that apprehension which he knew. "'It had to come,' said he, "'and today I see my thoughts straighter than I've been up to managing since, since my head got clear. And now I must say these thoughts, if I can, if I can.' He stopped. His eyes were intent upon her. One hand was gripping the arm of his chair. 
"'You promised,' trembled Molly. "'I promised you should love me,' he sternly interrupted. "'Promise that to myself. I have broken that word.' She shut David Copperfield mechanically, and grew white. "'Your letter has come to me here,' he continued, gentle again. "'My—' she had forgotten it. "'The letter you wrote to tell me good-bye. You wrote it a little while ago. Not a month yet, but it's away and away long gone for me.' "'I have never let you know,' began Molly. "'The doctor,' he interrupted once more, but very gently now. "'He gave orders I must be kept quiet. "'I reckon you thought telling me might—' "'Forgive me,' cried the girl. "'Indeed, I ought to have told you sooner. "'Indeed, I had no excuse.' "'Why, should you tell me if you preferred not? "'You had written, and you speak,' he lifted the letter, "'of never being able to repay kindness. "'But you have turned the tables. "'I can never repay you by anything, by anything.' So I had figured I would just jog back to Sunk Creek and let you get away, if you did not want to say that kind of good-bye, for I saw the boxes. Mrs. Taylor is too nice a woman to know the trick of lying, and she could not deceive me. I have knowed you were going away for good ever since I saw those boxes. But now here comes your letter, and it seems no way but I must speak. I have thought a deal, lying in this room, and, to-day, I can say what I have thought. I could not make you happy. He stopped, but she did not answer. His voice had grown softer than whispering, but yet was not a whisper. From its quiet syllables she turned away, blinded with sudden tears. Once I thought love must surely be enough, he continued. And I thought if I could make you love me, you could learn me to be less, less, more your kind. And I think I could give you a pretty good sort of love. But that don't help the little mean pesky things of day by day that make roughness or smoothness for folks tied together so awful close. Mrs. Taylor here, she don't know anything better than Taylor does. She don't want anything he can't give her. Her friends will do for him and his for her. And when I dreamed of you in my home, he closed his eyes and drew a long breath. At last he looked at her again. This is no country for a lady. Will you forget and forgive the botherin' I have done? Oh, cried Molly, oh, and she put her hands to her eyes. She had risen and stood with her face covered. "'I surely had to tell you this all out, didn't I?' said the cowpuncher, faintly, in his chair. "'Oh,' said Molly, again. "'I have put it clear how it is,' he pursued. "'I ought to have seen from the start. I was not the sort to keep you happy.' "'But,' said Molly, "'but I—you ought—please try to keep me happy.' And sinking by his chair, she hid her face on his knees. Speechless, he bent down and folded her round, putting his hands on the hair that had been always his delight. Presently he whispered, "'You have beat me. How can I fight this?' She answered nothing. The Navajo's scarlet and black folds fell over both. Not with words, not even with meeting eyes, 
did the two plight their troth in this first new hour. So they remained long, the fair head nesting in the great arms, and the black head laid against it, while over the silent room presided the little grandmother Stark in her frame, rosy, blue, and flaxen, not quite familiar, not quite smiling. End of chapter 27, part 2